Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Yes, hello. It's Jason Louv. My returning guest today is John Graham, who is an award-winning translator, artist, and writer specializing in esoteric topics and surrealism who lives in Vermont. He's also my editor at Inner Traditions and is responsible for bringing the John Dee and the Empire of Angels book that I wrote to the world along with everyone else at Inner Traditions. Big shout out. So this is his second appearance on the podcast and he's coming on to talk about this huge book that he just put out that he translated. It's 912 pages long. It's called The Bavarian Illuminati, The Rise and Fall of the World's Most Secret Society. And this is a book from actually the early part of the 20th century that is the definitive book on the most mysterious and perhaps feared secret society of all time, the infamous Bavarian Illuminati. Let me just read you a little bit about the book. The Bavarian Order of the Illuminati is the most celebrated secret society in the world. Though officially lasting only 11 years, the powerful spell and shadow cast by the Illuminati still looms in the present day, where its influence can be seen in current conspiracy beliefs and actions by powerful individuals working in the shadows. The original order of the Illuminati was founded by Bavarian professor Adam Weishaupt in 1776. Although the order was banned and brought down by the Bavarian elector in 1787, when he became aware of the extent to which it had infiltrated the courts, schools, and his own administration, its legend and deep influence lives on to this day. Charting the rise and fall of this infamous order, this book, first published in French in 1915 and never before available in English, remains the definitive history of the order of the Bavarian Illuminati. Other secret societies that shared the stage with the Illuminati during these years include the Templar Strict Observance, von Hun's Templar Freemasonry, and other Masonic lodges the Illuminati targeted to subvert for their own purposes. Many of the documents the author consulted for the writing of this book were destroyed during the two world wars, making this book the only surviving record of many of the order's secrets. The author explains the Bavarian Illuminati's grades, rituals, and ceremonies, as well as its, as well as its fundamental philosophies. He paints vivid portraits of the leaders of the order, including Weishaupt, Baron Carnegie, and Xavier von Zwack, who sounds like the most terrifying Indiana Jones villain of all time. He reveals how Weishaupt early on decided to subvert the existing German Freemason Lodge as a shortcut 
to gain esoteric hegemony over the occult world. Wouldn't that be nice? All in order to extend Illuminati influence into the society at large and the government. In addition to its revelation of little-known secrets of the Illuminati order, the author also sheds new light on much of the occult life of this time, including the activities of figures such as Cagliostro and Mirabeau and other active groups such as Freemason chapters, the Rosicrucians, and the Martinists. Okay, lots of fun. So if you don't speak the esoteric language of pseudo-Masonic orders and Illuminoid groups and things like that, you've probably still heard of the Illuminati because they're basically urban folklore and blamed for everything that goes wrong in the world, even though basically they didn't even exist after the 17th and 18th centuries. So the reality is pretty interesting, although it's not like you're going to find out that Jay-Z is in the Illuminati or anything like that. Although I must reveal at this point that according to 23andMe, I am one half Bavarian, so I myself am apparently Bavarian Illuminati. Okay, with that, please welcome our guest, John Graham, and enjoy the show. Thank you for being back on the podcast, John. I'm very honored to have you back on. I'm honored to be invited. Thank you. So let's just start with the the most obvious question. Who are the Illuminati and what do they be doing? Well, the Illuminati are kind of the archetypical secret society. And what this book does is show who they really were and then offers some insights into how they turned into the group that, instead of just disappearing from the uh, stage of history in 1790, are still pulling strings in every uh, government of the world uh, that uh, are on either side of most conflicts, working for their own personal ends. I mean, my personal contact with the with modern Illuminati is is kind of uh, silly and trite. People will send me invitations to join the Illuminati, which I translated this book, you know, 15 years ago. And, you know, that's a whole story in and of itself. And it just came out due to a variety of reasons. But I'd be getting things from somebody offering me immense wealth and power, the secrets to any number of hermetic traditions. And the person doing it was like a mechanic in Des Moines or, you know, a hairdresser in some little town like Death Crib, Missouri or something. You know, it's like, it was just, how 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 is this because I'd read this, I translated it, and I had all the, the you know, it's a fairly detailed. Uh the author is very psychologically astute and puts together these really nice portraits of the actual players in the original Illuminati who did achieve a certain degree of success in putting their members in positions of power when the uh Bavarian elector eventually due to the uh urgings of the duchess started cracking down on them that sort of opened up a floodgate of people exposing them and the illuminati would invite them to to uh reveal themselves in person but of course they wouldn't because they just assumed the illuminati controlled the courts they controlled the media but they actually did have quite a few people in power that were funneling money and positions of prestige and authority to fellow members. 
And yeah. this was a, this was the, the goal was at that the, point was, it was the an, 1780s. Okay. Basically was their heyday. And was it only in Bavaria or outside of? It was in Bavaria, but it, it actually spread into Germany, Germany. And you, you did have uh, people of who are like Goethe was a member though, as the author points out, it was only a kind of a frivolous pastime for him. He never was a, never was involved in it. Other people like Nikolai Herder, the philosopher, they drew in a lot of people, but you know, you find in the uh, the responses of the more uh, evolved intellectuals of that period, they found the the actual philosophical statements of the Illuminati fairly disappointing. Oh, interesting. I was I was going to ask you if it was similar to the Rosicrucian movement, where a bunch of intellectuals found it really interesting and essentially made it real by... Well, there are some things. I mean, the Rosicrucians were one of... Well, the uh, Rosicrucians of the, the late 18th century were one of the prime movers in the destruction of the Illuminati because the Illuminati was basically... had mainly become a political system uh, promoting enlightenment and republican ideals as opposed to the more the the more hermetic groups like the Rosicrucians were still looking at the hierarchy, the monarchy, as having a spiritual value in society that discarding it would open the door to chaos. And Are, arguably true, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, Weishaupt, uh, Adam Weishaupt, who who created it, and actually, you know tried to engineer a takeover of Freemasonry for the purposes of Illuminism, uh, was mainly motivated by his extreme uh, resentment of the Jesuits. You know, uh, Bavaria at the time that the Illuminati came into being was still like the most backwards part of what's now Germany. And Prussia, uh, Hesse, all these different areas were part of the uh, Protestant Enlightenment, whereas Bavaria was still very Catholic and it was controlled by the Jesuit order. And the Bavarian elector still had a uh, Jesuit eminence Greece, who his spiritual advisor, who would give him counsel on how to approach certain situations. And he, I, this, there, the, uh, the Jesuit advisor, the Bavarian elector, really stepped into his own when the Illuminati were exposed and, you know, went crazy, exposing them as representing everything that was wrong with what was in the modern world. Huh, so nothing's changed in a way of people obsessing, obsessing over that. I mean, the thing about this book, I mean, the, 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 you, you feel like you're reading, you're know, reading about some of these pretentious noblemen of 18th century Germany, and it sounds like modern hedge fund traders are uh, <laughs> are tech bros, you know. And you, I always thought, well, maybe Ayn Rand was responsible for creating this kind of short-sighted greed that absolutely that you know, there's this kind of libertarian resentment of the real world, that nature or anything outside of what they want. Is some sort of uh, fraud that people that's perpetuated upon them to stymie them in their in their ultimately 
you know, well-founded designs. Yeah, it's interesting and, that the the you know factions of tech bros in in the Bay Area have embraced Evola as their yeah. libertarian. I, I, he's not really he's a monarchist, but he's an arch arch reactionary, but as their new ideal. So maybe it's not so different. About, you know, Evola. I mean, I I question whether a lot of the people that like Evola, I, I just call them Evolians, but they don't actually read him. You know, and you know he was he made himself persona non grata in Germany. Because he didn't, uh, he questioned their racial, the, ra the racial basis of their ideology. And actually told Goebbels or someone that, well, you know, there are plenty of Aryans that are the, are, you know, that are pure uh, examples of your Jewish archetype. And then there are plenty of Jews that represent all that's best of your Aryan archetype. So that kind of remark didn't go over too well. Yeah, I, I think you mentioned that to me at one point, and I, I I looked it up, and lo and behold, he was too reactionary for the for the Nazis, which I found pretty yeah. funny. But to talk about, I just want to catch the audience up real quick because, and and I want you to tell me if I have this correct, just the basic boilerplate on the Illuminati. So my, my understanding of the, the actual historical facts of the Illuminati were that they were a paramasonic order started by Adam Weishaupt to essentially be an anti, an anti-Catholic movement to take over Freemasonry. Is that, and then it, it pretty much didn't go any further than the 17th century. It died out fairly quickly. Is that more or less correct? That's pretty pretty much correct. I mean, they uh, it went beyond the uh, the anti-Catholic. That was the that was embryonic. That was that was part of its early mission. That was Weishaupt's main concern. But as they as the order grew and took in people that were more sophisticated, more cosmopolitan, the their their mission started to become broader. And was more into promoting uh, what we might call democratic ideals, removing the uh, the obstacles that the monarchy and the church placed in the way of the development of uh, human reason. Um, it was very much, you know, it, it's, its main tenets were were based on the Enlightenment. But it was a paramasonic organization insofar as more like uh, one of those parasitical entities that implants itself within an existing structure and then cannibalizes it and grows grows from it. It, it started off with when uh, Weishaupt abandoned his idea to just appropriate some elements of uh, masonry, such as the higher grades, things like that to incorporate into the existing Illuminati system, but under the uh, counsel of some of the more sophisticated and cosmopolitan members, actually uh, started joining Masonic lodges with the idea of taking them over from within, recruiting the best members of those lodges to go into the Illuminati, basically turning the Illuminati into what would be the higher grades of like the uh, Scottish masonry or something like that, that they would just say, they would, they would actually uh, 
look at all the people that were in the lodge and decide which ones they wanted to recruit and then present them at uh, the Illuminati system as the true higher grades that Masonry were promising, but was a fraud on, on the part of uh, the existing Masonic orders. So he was seeing it basically as uh, something to hijack or like a staging ground for his ideas. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Well, it makes sense for the time because, you know, if there's no internet, if you're going to find a, a pre-existing network to get your ideas out there, that kind of explains some of these Masonic, um, you know, paper chases. But let me ask you, who, who exactly was Adam Weishaupt and how did he end up in this position and what exactly were, what incited him to do this? What exactly was he trying to do and how did, how did this game begin? Well, he was a uh, professor at Ingolstadt of uh, Canaan law, which is religious law. And his efforts to he felt thwarted by the Jesuit influences at Ingolstadt University, and, and uh, several times his position there was jeopardized. So he thought, you know, he as as a single person, he was not able to fight against an organization as venerable and as intricate as the Jesuits. So he was looking to recruit people that could join him in a crusade that would eventually undermine the Jesuits' ability to stymie the, what he saw as the values he championed and his role in promoting them. I mean, there was, it was inseparable. His, his, the Illuminati was, the, the order of the Illuminati, in many cases, uh, was a direct reflection of his ego and what he needed at that a specific time in his career. And its expansion actually came against his initial reluctance to do it. Sounds like a lot of people I know. It sounds like Crowley as well. And actually a lot of people who start these, uh, you know, secret societies to kind of, you know, I, I think we both know people who are, you know, want to create that academic environment for themselves, but they don't necessarily, they, they don't want to do it or they can't do it in the, the academic system. So they create their own outsider exactly. version of it so they can kind of have acolytes who listen to them and that type of thing. And it certainly sounds like Crowley. It sounds like a lot of people actually. So that's, that's interesting. No, it's really a template, really. If you, you know, read, reading through the book, you can see plenty of analogies with what's going on now, even if just on the historical context, that, you know, some hundred years before the so-called occult revival in Paris, uh, you know, hermetic ideas were running wild all over the continent. And it's been an ongoing thing because just a hundred years before this, you have the Rosicrucian revival in the 1600s. And the idea that the Thirty Years' War was possibly a Rosicrucian war that was initiated by the desire to preserve the Emperor uh, Franz's open occult society of Prague from the uh, Austrian-Hungarian Empire that was looking to just reimpose uh, Catholic dogma. 
Yeah, that's always been fascinating to me. And well, I mean, the John D book, which you commissioned and were the editor for, a lot of kind of my thesis for that book was that a lot of these, what we think of as the occult now comes out of these orders then, which were almost explicitly anti-Jesuit or mirror reflections of the Jesuits as, as an attempt to de, de, well, as you said it, get away from the, get humanity out of the influence of the church and the monarchies. But I'm guessing, well, for my first question is, do you, do you agree that that's a correct read? Uh, that's basically the one I've come up with. I mean, I can't, it, it just, it seems to be a ongoing leitmotif throughout this history. And it, it's so interesting to me that in, in, in some senses, America is the product of that. Yeah, you could make that case. I mean, uh, the Masonic influences, which would include, I mean, Thomas Jefferson wrote about the Bavarian Illuminati. Their ideas oh. were not foreign. What, what did he say about them? Not to interrupt, but I'm, I, I didn't know that. Uh, I'd have to look. I hadn't, uh, I just remember seeing that he uh, referred to them as offering sane ideas about social governance. Hmm. And, you know, he referred to them several times, but that, you know, as part of the general Masonic influence in the United States. I mean, it was a, it was a major factor in the Revolutionary War. But, you know, the Masonry has all, always had its uh, conservative and progressive sides. Yeah, I I, th I began to think about this a lot differently. Actually, when when you, I'm sure you remember Adam Parfrey put that book on secret societies out, which yeah. was great. And the, the point that is made in that book, which for some reason we, we think of secret societies now as something that they weren't in a way where the point that that book makes is that before television, pretty much all Americans were in them. And they just, it was like something that you did, kind of like a bowling group or a drinking group or something like that. So they were presumably much more widespread than, than, than we think of now and less esoteric, I imagine. I mean, you'd find them when, uh, I mean, a good example, you could look at England during the time of the Enclosure Act, when they uh, basically evicted thousands of thousands of rural people off of lands that they had lived on since the 12th or 11th century. And at the same time they did that, they passed laws that outlawed all secret societies, all oath-sworn groups, except for the Masons, because the Masons in England was mainly for rich merchants and nobility. But in rural societies, you had the Drover's Guild, the Cobbler's Guild. All of these guilds were also secret societies with their own, uh, you could actually say, uh, system of magic or ritual. And you get survivals of that in things such as uh, the Morris Dancers. You know, they come out of uh, certain rituals that occurred at certain times of the year where the, a certain guild would send its members out to remind the people in their community of the place they, of the role they played in that society. And that's where the, the blackened face comes from, because at night you put coal black on your face. It made it harder for the people that might 
want to rat you out to the church ah. or to the authorities. And you're at a time before there was a local constable. They'd have to get, you know, redcoats to come in from one of the, you know, the barracks at some nearby town or uh, city. Interesting. Well, you mentioned magic and, and ritual. So, uh, you know, this is, of course, so, so I have to bring this up because this is something that everyone always thinks of, of the Illuminati. Like they must have been doing these secret occult rites. There must have been a final secret of the Illuminati. You know, there must have been this kind of Christopher Lee hammer horror thing going on. So is that correct? Were they, were they actually doing, were they getting up to that at all? No, this is basically, if you want to, this is, this is like a really, uh, what would they call it? It's like a, a reading group with that uh, tried to give itself police powers over its members. Huh, that's so it sounds like basically all occult groups now. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the, uh, uh, the expectations that the Illuminati had of their members, there was no time for magic spells. And in fact, they were, they were actively, uh, against superstition of that type, which is why they excited the animosity of the Rosicrucians, the Martinists, and other groups, as well as the, uh, the noblemen who were supporting those groups, who would then used their power to try and uh, thwart the Illuminati. But you'd have to, the novice Illuminati, in order to rise through the ranks into the intervals, would have to do these daily records of self-analysis and, you know, share all their flaws, all their defects with their, their, the person, their insinuator, the person who had brought them in. At the same time, they were encouraged to write reports of equal length about other members because that would not only train them to notice uh, character traits and to become an expert in reading an individual, but it also gave the uh, Illuminati heads leverage against the people under them. That's so. That, that's amazing because that's such a common just cult control tactic. Scientology does the exact same thing, and in a sense, you, you could maybe even argue that the Catholic confessional might serve yeah. something of a similar yeah. purpose if it's used misused. That's amazing. So, so I guess, so you mentioned this, the conf that's just a classic hallmark of cults. Right. And then there's a, an incredible reading list. I mean, I read a lot and I look at this and I'm just like, you don't have time to write anything if you're just going to, you know, it's like everything that's the classics. I mean, there's like the, you know, the Illuminati, they're, they're known to get the pseudonyms that they adopted were 90% uh, based on uh, famous figures in classical Greece and Rome. You know, uh, Adam Weishaupt was Spartacus. Uh, his uh, main associate, Zwack, was Cato. And it just goes on. There were a few that didn't get with the, the classical Greek-Roman scenario. There was one that called himself Odin. There was another one who called himself Tamerlan of the Golden Horde. But mainly the, the, the chief influence, which as it was for the, uh, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, were the uh, philosophers of ancient Greece and Rome. 
So it, it, it just everything you're saying basically describes at, le at least a handful, you know, I can probably count on a couple no, hands secret you know, societies it, now, you know, it's like whether it's, it's the OTO or I mean, if whoever. you read this book, <laughs> then you just miss the part of it where it says the elector count of Bavaria put them out of existence. By 1790, there was no real Illuminati power. But with the French Revolution, the, you know, Abbe Baruel, there were a number of authors that were looking for this, you know, the evil entity that had caused the French people to revolt. I mean, it's a, it's a, I think we've talked about this before, but in my view, there's people that, more conservative people always look, they're looking top down. And more progressive people are looking grassroots up. So the people that are conservative that were upset with the Jacobin uh, revolt, the French Revolution, couldn't believe that the sans culottes would ever have had any problem whatsoever that would have driven them into the streets. That they had to have been encouraged. And you still see that today. Oh, yeah. Then, right? Oh, people yeah. telling you what you're allowed to read, what you're allowed to listen to. And what you're not allowed to listen to. I mean, like, oh, yeah. look at Joe Rogan. Look at, uh, you know, Russell Brand is all of a sudden a right-wing thinker because he's just trying to say, well, you know, Joe Rogan isn't, you know, completely bad. Right. Yeah, and and everything gets distorted and and, you know, and, and it, framed it, it, how they it, want it to. You know, and it's regardless of what you think about them, you're, they're supposed to not exist. It's like taking uh, the shunning concept from uh, Amish society and trying to make it work on a, on a nationwide scale. Oh, yeah. No, I think scale. about that a lot, actually. It's such a tribal... We're still so tribal, it's unbelievable, and it's just being played out on a global scale with the internet. And I always think about the... I'm sure you you remember the scape you know the scapegoat ritual that James Frazier writes about, where you pick yeah. one thing to represent all the sins of the tribe, and then you all destroy it, and you're good for at least a week. And that's pretty yeah. much that's pretty much how the, how the news cycle works now. So, I guess yeah, I guess the the solution to being canceled is probably just to wait a week until everyone yeah. moves on to the next thing. But you mentioned it's so funny. You're also on the other hand, you're also mentioning like people had no. They, they, it was inconceivable to them that conditions would be bad enough for people to revolt. And you see that now where you have like, you know, Tucker Carlson or other people saying, you know, coming out with these, well, if there's, if there's protests, it must be George Soros and Antifa exactly. super soldiers and all this completely ridiculous oh, no, they have or this distorted. That anybody that's familiar with just the mechanics of voting know that busloads of voters can't go from Massachusetts into New Hampshire and just invade a precinct and cast their ballots. I mean, the governor's son, uh, the guy that won the uh, Virginia governor's race, his son tried to illegally vote twice and got booted out both times. Yeah. You know, it's like that there's, it's, it's not something that hordes of, you know, there's busloads of paid for by George Soros. There are the demonstrations in Portland where, you know, some photo of the back parking lot of some uh, transit company is taken and put on the internet with a caption that says, this is right outside the area where all the riots are in 
Portland, but actually it's probably in Des Moines or someplace like that. Yeah, we're we're seeing that with the war in Ukraine too. There's so many fake photos or things taking out of context. Yeah, I saw pictures of parachutists or something that was supposed to be. So it seems kind of. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say it. It just seems to be something. When I, as I'm sure a lot of people, when I was a teenager and I was starting to read this stuff, luckily I started off with Robert Anton Wilson, who has a very kind of comedic and level-headed perspective about all of this. But when you first encounter this stuff, you think, well, what what if there are these people out there controlling everything? And, you know, as time goes on, I it just seems that this is just part of human psychology to imagine this group that doesn't exist that is the reason for why your life is the way that it is or the reason for events because that's comforting in a way. Yeah. And but that 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 just seems to be a mechanic in the human psychology that we have to be careful about. I think you see it obviously we saw it in the satanic panic. We're seeing it with the the whole QAnon thing now where it's, you know, Democrats are all baby eating pedophiles and in right. the it's just like, you know, and it's kind of amazing how it doesn't matter how ridiculous the claim is. People are still going to believe it. Yeah, I mean, and, and they're uh, absolutely impervious to any objections to it. I wonder what that, what function that plays for people. And, you know, I mean, the whole, the whole thing about JFK, or JFK Jr. coming back. <laughs> I mean, it's like... It's amazing. I mean, these are two of the top liberal icons if there were anybody that were like dining on babies wouldn't they be the ones i mean it's like it's it the the illogic that you find in QAnon. i mean it, you know the illuminati system makes sense but the thing about QAnon is that it seems to abandon any attempts to to uh be reasonable or any kind any form of logic i reckon yeah, I was talking to my dad about this because we have a, a kind of a family friend who's gone full on down the QAnon tunnel to nowhere, and it's it's very very stressful. And we were like, he was saying, it's just, or we were kind of agreeing, it's just the, having that whether it's QAnon or something else, it's kind of a way for people to feel special and that they know something that other people don't, and then all of a sudden yep. they again have control. Or it's not even control. It's if if you live in a world that is as we all do, that is basically you have no say in. Jeff Bezos has a ton of say in it. People like that, Elon Musk, have a ton of say in it. The governors who are shutting down states have a ton of say in it. But the average person has basically no say. So to all of a sudden say, well, particularly if you don't have some type of power in the real world, like corporate power or academic degrees or things like that, you can say, well, but I know this that you don't know. So, ha, huh, now I'm above you. And the other thing is just, yeah, it, it, I, I think that's pretty much it. Actually, it kind of allows you to have both a sense of control and a sense of superiority. Right. And, you know, I think there's an element, you know, what uh, Thoreau talked about, people living lives of quiet desperation, this adds a kind of intoxicating element that counters that sense of desperation. That's a grim and very, I think, accurate point. One thing that I, I've thought about also is 
to counterpoint that is it's become so like many other things that relate to working class people it's been so fashionable for you know so-called sophisticated liberals to mock QAnon and all of this stuff and, and i was thinking about this and i i thought well what do you what are people actually saying it obviously QAnon is ridiculous and I, I just did a podcast about how ridiculous it is but at the same time people are kind of saying well it's, it's kind of like what do you expect people to do are they not allowed to at least guess who has power over them just because they don't have like a political science degree or they don't subscribe to the New York Times now they're not allowed to be angry or guess at these powers these real power structures that actually do have unbelievable uh, malevolent power over them whether it's you know uh, uh, factory loss factories leaving towns whether it's you know Purdue pharmaceutical pumping oxycontin into their into their towns things like that so it's not like they don't have real grievances obviously their their expression of why it's happening is is untrue and ridiculous which is unfortunate but it's kind of at the same time there's a bit of an elitist thing of saying well you're not allowed to question basically mm -hmm. no i think that's true i mean that basically their views are being discounted and that's the only thing they have I mean, you're you're looking at a time that's still in human memory of you know their parents, their fathers retired with a pension from a job they had as you know since high school, since they graduated high school, and all of a sudden you know they're supposed to go in the service industry. <laughs> Yeah, or learn to code as everyone's being told. Right. Is, well, yeah. Yeah, but there's no there's there's no real infrastructure that's set up to actually help this. There's more things like Trump University <laughs> that are looking to, you know, take advantage of people trying to better themselves. That are basically just uh, you know, funnels to get money out of their pockets. Yeah. It's very unfortunate. Into the hands of the undeserving rich. Yes. Yeah. That's very unfortunate. The, yeah, it's kind of dangled false hopes for people. One, one thing I think about, and this obviously applies to the, the Illuminati, is we can look at these things and if you say, well, you just take a literal read of it, obviously it's untrue. Like QAnon or the Illuminati running the world, obviously that is not true. But if you look at it in forgive me, but a Jungian sense or as kind of it having a mythological resonance in its own right that is almost like a dialed up political caricature of an actual situation. Suddenly now it becomes more interesting. It becomes more like mm -hmm. folk art. So an example would be, you know, I always wondered, I, I think he is actually serious, David Icke about the whole reptilian thing. I think he actually is 100% believes it. But for a while I was, I suspected he was doing like a Jonathan, Jonathan Swift type thing of the, right. the upper class eat babies, which is extremely funny. But he was saying, well, they're shape-shifting lizards, which is silly. But at the same time, if you take it as a political cartoon, it has a lot of merit in the sense of just pointing out the mentality and of of the ruling elite, perhaps, and, and getting yeah. people to well, think about it in a certain you look way. At them and, and you have to figure they have to be some sort of alien species because they act as if the degradation they're causing on the world won't have any bad consequences for them. But, you know, 
Yeah. There's, so there's no there's no way out if uh, you know air goes bad. There's no food if if you know that's the thing about climate change. I mean the storms and all fire, you know, uh, wildfires, all that stuff, floods. You know, that's all bad. But what really is bad is when the weather system is so dysfunctional that people can't depend on getting a harvest out of what they plant. Yeah. Well, presumably Monsanto's working on that. Well, yeah. Well, they'd love to have, you know, get rid of those bees working for free. And, you know, you'd have to pay for their little <laughs> robot bees. But that's a real thing, right? That's, that's not a joke, right? That's real, right? My yeah. God. But, but, you know, I think actually it's sort of scarily like uh, Ernst Jünger's glass bees, where the bees swarms and started, you know, killing humans. Well, you, you may have seen Bill Gates at the beginning of the pandemic released genetically he well he released genetically modified mosquitoes to kill all the other mosquitoes and and the u.s government has mosquito drones to spy on people so we, we live in such a bizarre like magic or esotericism at this point is the least bizarre thing in our world in my opinion oh i know <laughs> it but makes magic it has a kind of logic and morality to it that's completely lacking in the kind of systems that are overshadowing us and absolutely and and it allows people one of the in my opinion one of the one of the the parts of the magical process and of course this is tricky because you can't fall into literalism but is the ability to symbolize to to conceptualize things that are much bigger than you in the form of symbols right and and so i think that even even something like the david ike lizard people thing is in a way it's like it's positing a symbol that allows you to talk about something so complex that it, it very briefly that is too complex to ever understand. Well, in a, you know, that's how I feel about it. I mean, I've thought of, you know, that as lizard people, they basically abandoned their humanity in right. order to do what they're doing. And then you look at Jeff Bezos, who, when he started, looked like a bit player on The Office. And now he's got some sort of uh, Lex Luthor, create uh, cloned by a by some alien look. Yeah, and you, I'm sure you've heard his terrifying laugh, also. Yeah, yeah, it's like, <laughs> no, yeah, but God, God knows what chemicals they pump that guy full of. Also, it's like when you're at that level. You probably see, the, here's the thing. It's like people laugh about the the eating babies and adrenochrome thing, but then you have people like Peter Thiel in Silicon Valley who's into Evola and is getting blood transfusions from teenage boys to live longer, or or you know, oh, yeah. rich people have access to these super expensive stem cell r replacement therapies, and that's that's from perhaps aborted babies in some cases so in in a sense it's kind of for for me these things are like it's like the zen thing of you know first there's a mountain then there's no mountain then there's a mountain again or it's like almost when you really dig into it it's like the reality is not the mythological version but it, sometimes it's not that far off right well you know there was the Karl Rove uh, political dictum where you blame your opponents of what you're actually of your crimes so when they come around to it and start accusing you of them, it's like, oh, we all do it. And the media just falls right into that trap. And the Democrats do too, because 
they try to explain it away rationally. And it's something that is uh, is acting on people viscerally. And yeah. You know, and even now with Republicans that are uh, turned off by Trump, trying to become advisors to Democrats, saying, hey, you can't do this. Whether it's Frank, you know, you know how to re- how to frame things. It's like it's like they're constitutionally incapable of not seeing the world as some sort of like coffee house where everybody can just sit down and you know hash out things quietly. And yeah, you mean Frank Luntz? Uh, no, is uh, he wrote "What's Wrong with Kansas"? His last name is Frank. Oh, I don't know. Uh, he wrote. Uh, it's a. It's a. He, his books are on how uh, the Republicans are masters at framing things and the Democrats are masters at falling into the trap of accepting the Republicans' definition of things in which to discuss them. Yeah. Which only gives more validity. Which is ironic because the, the Democrats put so much stock in like George Lakoff and people like this to teach them the, the grand high occult arts of reframing, which is the most basic right. ever NLP thing. And apparently it hasn't paid off. And, and I think in terms of blaming your, your enemy for what you're doing, we've, that, that's, we've seen that so up close and personal with the Republicans and the alt-right where they've suddenly cast the, the people on the left as, as a fascist force to be fought against. Well, it's like, well, if you want to see fascism, wait for, you know, Republican theocracy in America. That's real fascism, not you know, you can't say certain words or something like that, which is not great either, but it's amazing how they've suddenly, I was thinking about this last night, the Republican party is improbably cast themselves as the underdog freedom fighters. It's like bizarre. Well, yeah. And all their, their grassroots efforts are supported by billionaires. You know, in fact, uh, the, uh, banning book, uh, anti-school board movement is totally funded by Charles Koch and his organizations. That dark money, there's a, you know, ever since Jane Mayer revealed how that money gets out into society, Mm. you know, people can easily see it coming back in. And the people that, you know, the the news media always fails to identify it. Yeah, that's that's the real tragedy in a way. Uh, Because, because in my mind, it's like, you know, at least from my background, it's like kind of Republicans are going to Republican. You can count on Ted Cruz to be Ted Cruz. But the problem is that the other side basically puts up no resistance. And I've seen that since. And I've been angry about that since Gore lost to Bush. And we ended up in this hellscape that didn't have to be. And so anyways, not to make it go too far down that but 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 one final point on that i was thinking about recently that the it's amazing how also the republicans have turned cancel culture which is obviously not good but they've turned it into their central thing but then if you actually look at you know all the people screaming about cancel culture are essentially rich white men with the biggest platforms in human history to communicate with people and then if you look at the you know if you look at the list of the top 100 banned books in america the actually canceled ones the t- the n- most canceled author in, in america is sherman alexi and it's yeah. like native americans lgbt people pe- you know people of color black people their stories and and especially in the case of sherman alexi that there's such just a dark evil irony to that where it's like well if you look at who america's st- 
still really canceling it's native americans you know oh, nothing yeah. changes so anyways back to the illuminati so okay. let me <laughs> it's interesting we we i we kind of i started talking about this with tobias churton as well because it's everyone's concerned about it so in your opinion the illuminati did not survive past the past the 18th century or 17th century uh that's the conclusion of this book though at the end the author points out that there is a new illuminati order that you can reach and he gives their mailing address so back at, i mean this book was written before world war one he was over in germany and uh studying all these archives uh some of which no longer survive so as far as source material this is it is you know two world wars past that but uh yeah that's you know vicehop was went into exile outside of the you know beyond the reaches of the uh bavarian state police uh the members of the Illuminati were dumped from their positions. You know, a few managed to hold on to their positions, but they were basically silenced. And they got a new lease on life after the French Revolution, when all of these uh, conservative thinkers were looking to see who was who had actually caused this, because you couldn't. It was inconceivable that the French people would have just been fed up and said enough already. So they were looking for the people that had manipulated the French into uh, abandoning their role as docile servants of the uh, established order. Unbelievable. And, what a yeah. terrible thing to do. So, yeah. so but do, do you think that there are, so do you think that there is merit to that at all in the sense that perhaps the Illuminati were responsible for the French or even the American revolutions? Uh, only as an inspirational influence. I don't think that there were actual uh, material resources or direct contact. I mean, there might have been there's some French uh, uh, Mirabeau, people like that. Uh, some cursory meetings with uh, people that were part of the Illuminati milieu, but uh, yeah. and then you have to take into account people like Cagliostro who may or may not have because he would take anything and embellish on it. Interesting. So yeah, well let me let me ask that question in a, in a slightly different way, which is do you really do you see any difference between essentially the doctrine of the illuminati and where we are now in the modern world in the sense that we ha are we have overthrown the monarchy we have largely overthrown the church we are kind of uh to, I, I would hope a, a scientific and enlightenment based society did were they successful i mean it has the modern world adopted their their stance well i mean that's still up for debate i mean you have uh the Christian the, you know, the, the Yal Atila, <laughs> Yal Qaeda, and, yeah. uh, you know, the Dominionist forces of America, they're basically, I mean, I people say, oh, they're trying to turn the clock back to 1953. I see it back to the Gilded Age, really. And the monarchy of finance 
has replaced mm. the hereditary monarchies. And they're also, you know, to me, that my, my view of the, uh, the hardcore capitalist doctrine is it's a, it's a direct uh, outgrowth of huh. Christian beliefs where, you know, you see, you see the, uh, the sense of grace, the people that are poor don't receive the grace of finance, but those that are. So you have these certain Christian ideas that have come out of Protestantism that are, you know, are core elements of the capitalist justification of their behavior. I, I completely agree. And I've, I've always seen it that way, particularly with the, I forget there was a very famous author that made that the argument of the Protestant work ethic essentially became the capitalist ethic. I forget the name of the is famous, famous author, but the, yeah, it's a very grim Calvinist kind of view of things, of, with, yeah. but also about people being elected. But then you have like the prosperity gospel with people like Joel Osteen saying, God wants you to have a Lamborghini, you know, and if you don't get one, you're not good enough, which is also very Calvinist. And that that's probably something that's never going to go away in America, unfortunately. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's the, we never reach the horizon here. Yeah. There's good, there's good things about that too, but it's also pretty vicious, but mm -hmm. I'm interested in just to take it back a second. You, you touched on saying not just Christian ideas, but you see kind of this new financial elite as a, as an, as the new monarchy that I haven't thought about ever before. And I'm super interested in what your take is on that. Well, uh, I mean, it's something I, I mean, they're above the law. I mean, this you know, this, this country, the founding fathers stressed the point that the Constitution is for a, uh, a country that is based upon laws, not men. And we've gone to the other extreme. And even a, I mean, I mean, I knew Trump was a grifter and a mafia bagman and all of these things back in the 70s when he first loomed up in the gossip columns of New York. And my brief, I mean, I know a lot of people who were stiffed by him. We all knew he was a deadbeat. Uh, when I was a bike messenger in New York, I was at uh, the Puck Building, which is like this major real estate thing. In fact, I think, uh, uh, what's his, his uh, daughter's, his son-in-law's, uh, Trump's son-in-law, what's his? Kushner. Kushner. Kushner owns that building. Huh. It was like, when I was there, it was when uh, Keith Haring and Basquiat had just become big. So realtors with money were just buying everything they could in East Village galleries, and they just had rooms filled with some pretty despicable art. And I was, remember going up there, and as a messenger, I'd hear conversations all the time because they just assumed you had to be ignorant or foreign to be doing that kind of job. They didn't realize that it was actually a really good job and you could make quite a bit of money. So people would just say the most ridiculous things. And there's like, I was on the elevator and this guy was scolding another guy. So don't get into bed with Donnie Trump, man. He's totally mobbed up. You won't get away. You know, he's, so, mm. you know, you have to deal with the mob in the city because they run the construction unions, but you don't get in bed with them. 
Yeah, they also run Las and, Vegas, and I, I remember being in. I, I was in downtown Vegas a few years ago, and just seeing that gigantic gold Trump Tower. It's like it really did feel like somebody trying to create a new monarchy. So we're, I'm curious. What you must have heard some other scandalous conversations. Oh yeah, I mean, well, well, some of it would just be. I was surprised how how much the new age had penetrated into. You know, you'd be on a uh, elevator at you know Doyle Dane Bernbach ad agency, and they'd all be talking about uh, rolfing, and then you know they'd start talking about some fluff campaign they were doing for the Argentine dictatorship. <laughs> you know. Amazing. Yeah, that was interestingly kind of my experience in New York as well, where surprisingly all these people, I guess it's not that surprising when you think about it, but I knew so many people on Wall Street or, well, I was working in an ad agency then, but, you know, there's a lot, so much money and so much idle time in a way. And so people are able to spend tons of money on these retreats and rolfing and, and, you know, finding themselves in, in very expensive ways. And it becomes like a status, a, a status game as well. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, you haven't, uh, you haven't rolfed yet, you know? Right. Yeah. It's interesting how much people forgot or not forgot. I mean, people are that, that whole New York Trump of the eighties just seems to have vanished from people's collective thinking and, or did during, it was replaced by the 2016 Trump, but it's like, like, I mean, I was, I was a kid and I knew Trump was corrupt because I was watching movies that made fun of him and things like that, you know, and like that movie Gremlins 2 that makes fun of him. I was like 10 when that, or nine when that came out. Yeah. And so, so I knew, and I was reading Mad Magazine and things like that, where it's like everyone knew his, it's like he was constantly the butt of, of jokes. Uh, I was I, I was recently rereading American Psycho and one of the most interesting things about that book that completely got forgotten and lost in the movie is that the serial that Patrick Bateman is obsessed with Donald Trump and he's constantly trying to emulate him and be at parties that he's at and reading the art of the deal and that that was left out of the movie. It was just, it was just amazing. And then I read an interview with Brett Easton Ellis where he says that actually he thinks that Patrick Bateman would no longer like Trump because he's become a populist and no longer the elitist symbol that he was in the eighties. Well, I mean, I always consider Trump as being uh, what people ignorant of wealth think wealth is. You know, I've worked in areas where, uh, so as a messenger, I was a cook. I used to work as a sous chef at a private club in South Palm Beach which was just filled with extremely rich, uh, self-infatuated people. And they all hated Trump, too. I mean, that kind of, you know, because he's a social climber. Ah. Yeah. I had friends in the uh, Virginia aristocracy trace their descent from Jeb Stewart and people like that. And, you know, as far as they were concerned, the world had gone to hell with Roosevelt. <laughs> who they insisted was Jewish. <laughs> and okay. That uh, people like Trump were nouveau riche that needed to be put back in the on the cotton fields or into uh, subsidiary positions as the white trash they were. 
too much white trash had gotten money. And, and money is a, their view was that money is a moral force. And most people don't have the moral strength to have money. Huh. Which is one of their main arguments against uh, the minimum wage. <laughs> okay, how that, no, convenient how that works out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it pretty eye-opening sometimes, you know, to go to, to be in these uh, areas where, well, I did a wedding once for, I photographed a wedding for a friend of mine, and I had, she said, the only way you'll get pictures is if they think you're one of you, or one of them. So she made up this fake identity for me, and my last name fits right in, it's Graham. So I was part of the Anglo-Irish aristocracy. Wow. And most of the time, there was like these elderly women who, when they weren't directing their maids in their starch uniform through the buffet line, were trying to figure out just what branch of the family I was from. Wow. This is it's so amazing. It's, it's particularly funny because in a way, America is perhaps inspired by these Illuminist groups. America is founded on the myth that that doesn't happen here. Like there shouldn't right. be an aristocracy. There is no birthright in America, supposedly. And in a, in a, in a, in a, maybe in a straight, maybe not even in a weird sense, in a straightforward sense, Donald Trump kind of really does personify America in that regard, where he's just this mm -hmm. completely crass individual who, you know, became Donald Trump. So, and, and, wow, that's really, so, I had a similar experience actually when I was 19. My first year back from college, I worked at a beach club in, San Diego for $8 an hour, which was minimum wage at that time. That was for those type of people. Like there were Vanderbilts there and people from all these moneyed families. And I got paid $8 an hour to bring them towels and wear short shorts. And it was, it was actually kind of a good, it was a good, it was a good job because I got to be on the beach, but it was amazing because I observed these and these were all people who had inherited money. They were parts of these families. They were, they looked a little inbred, you know, mm -hmm. and I was, the main thing that shocked me was how vapid they were because they had, they would get up every day. We would move out chairs for them to the, essentially the seaside. They would sit there staring at the ocean, drinking and doing crosswords all day long. And then they would have big dinner events where they drank more and then they would go to sleep and they would do it the next day. They were not reading. They were not doing business. They were just kind of vegetating. And to your point, the, the only person that tipped me the entire, the entire time was a guy who had made his money, who was a tech person. I don't know how he made it, but he'd somehow got into that and they were all shunning him because he was not one of them. He was nouveau. He just bought his way in. He didn't there have. was a member of the club that I worked for. It was the former under, uh, former owner of the National Enquirer, Generoso Pope, and he was the same way. He would come in to the kitchen and stick fifty dollar bills into the pockets of all the uh, dishwashers because he figured those were his people. And the the head chef was always trying to keep him out of the kitchen because the dishwashers would all disappear and go on a bender <laughs> after he visited. But the regular uh, members of the club really despised him. Plus, he bought the Vanderbilt estate down in South Palm Beach on uh, A1A. I, I very briefly... Go ahead. So, uh, 
but it was, it was you know the whole the whole experience you know my experience with with working for the obscenely wealthy was uh, one that basically served to feed the anarchist part of myself. I mean, the the head waiters at this place were all ex-German officers from World War II. Whoa. How did that happen? I guess there was a prisoner of war camp in Florida or something. What? Where they'd been sent off, and after they were released, they stayed. But That's bizarre. Were, but so were, what... Was it must have been more than just random that they were working there? Yeah, well, there's three of them, and they were like, you know, totally uh, uh, the Prussian spirit. I mean, the, there's always a divide between the kitchen and the front of the house. But you know, it was like Hogan's Heroes in the kitchen. <laughs> That's bizarre. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like another psychological mechanism. It's like one thing you you can always count on people to do is to find reasons to be better than the person next to them, particularly right. if that person is directly under them in the social ladder and reminds them of themselves. So, yeah, yeah, I I I had the same experience of it that seeing that feeding my anarchist spirit because it was just like what this is, you know, to think about that compared to you know, be, then being in India for me a few years later and seeing infants dying on the ground, just, you know, being killed by poverty, essentially. And and it, it's so easy. You mentioned like Ayn Rand, like you can, I, I suppose, get into this libertarian mindset where you think, well, the people who are rich are there because they're the titans of industry. They're Jeff Bezos and they're, they're um, you know, building things that people need or that Elon Musk are getting us into space. And I suppose there's, there's some validity to that. But on the other hand, it's like you, then you see people who are like having those experiences where for me, it's like, why, why are these people rich? It's maybe because, you know, 300 years ago or 700 years ago, their ancestors slaughtered a whole village and took over a country mm-hmm. and it's completely unearned and not and wasted. It's just like wasted and it doesn't come from building things for society. So, well, I don't have a problem with Bezos and Musk going to space. I just object to them coming back. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, there, I, I just my final point. <laughs> just because you would find this funny, my I did have a brief chance when I was working at that club. I, I tried to chat up uh, one of the a, a Vanderbilt who was the same age as me, uh, a Vanderbilt girl who was very cute and. I, it got nowhere. I was completely shot down. But for a brief instant, I thought I could have married into money. And then this whole occult fiasco never would have happened. I could have just been hanging out on the beach. Yeah, doing crosswords. Yeah. So, to, to again, come back to the, the Illuminati, do you think, I'm just, it, thoughts are emerging in my head as we're having this conversation where it's amazing that you have, and to relate it prior to your thoughts about blaming the luminous groups for the French Revolution rather than the conditions that people were actually in and being unable to eat, or what you mentioned about people accusing the other side of doing what they're doing, it just makes me think about now and maybe throughout history where we have truly powerful truly powerful people allowing these kind of conspiracy mm-hmm. theories to propagate. It's like, oh, it's not 
you know, it's not dark money. It's it's QAnon and Antifa, and that that serves people in power. Or to to go darker, you know, the the anti-Semitism of Henry Ford, yeah, or yeah. or World War II. That's not a mistake. You know, very much funded by very wealthy industrialists. Ford is an an example, but he's not the only one. George Bush's grandfather was oh, yeah. directly benefiting from concentration camp labor. So I wish that's just a point that has to be made so clearly. And I wish people would make clearly, which is that when, and I saw it so clearly, I was at Occupy when it was happening. It's like, I felt that the power structure for the first time was truly threatened by Occupy, by WikiLeaks, by the Arab Spring. And the next thing that happened which I think is probably the same thing that happened in the 20s and 30s is they invented their own version of the counterculture, which was the alt-right, which suddenly seems to be rebellious and populist and Trump and saying the same things, but actually completely serves their interest. No, I, yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. I suppose that's how fascism happens in a way, you know? Yeah. Well, I can't... I think Ernst Jünger said it in one of his diaries where he said the left invents horrors, but the right perfects them. <laughs> <laughs> That's super grim. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the, uh, I mean, it started off as national socialism, but the socialism part was what disappeared on the night of the long nights when uh, Hitler wiped out uh, his stormtrooper rivals right and that's when you know i think you did that on behalf of the uh getting the full support of uh, german corporations like ig farben oh interesting because uh the socialist part of the nazi movement was not internationalist and was racist but it still looked at giving the german workers the aryan workers a better a bigger piece of the pie Whoops, whoops. <laughs> yeah, interesting how that works out. I, I, I didn't know that at all, but it makes a lot of sense. And I've never actually looked at the full extent of how much German industrialists essentially brought Hitler to power. But I assume yeah, it's a lot. a miscalculation by the politicians. They thought he'd be malleable and easily contained. The little colonel would just, you know, be a lapdog. Yeah. It, there was a, a few days he could have been deposed, but the trade unions didn't realize the threat. If they'd called a general strike in Germany, that would have probably you know, ended his rule right there. But a week later, all the uh, head trade union people had been arrested and hmm yeah I, I i worry sometimes or more than sometimes that we're in a pretty similar position now and i it, that really clicked in for me when you saw and what i mean by similar position is kind of the the arrogance of big money and this kind of weimar era position we're in and i think that was made so clear in the both the well both the 2016 but particularly the 2020 election where it looked like Bernie might have won and he won California in the primaries and then you saw both the both Democrats and Republicans 
in a panic circling the wagons. And I, it was so clear. It's like, that's what they're actually afraid of. They're, they're far more afraid of Bernie Sanders and normal people than they are of this Trump, than of Trump. They would much rather prefer to have Trump in because he's not going to He's It's going to be good for business. And that right there is that could lead us into whether it's Trump or his, you know, somebody else. That is, I think, again, a, a, a gross miscalculation of how bad things could get. Yeah, I, I worry about that, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Try not to. It tends to induce dark moods. Yeah, yeah. It's particularly well not to harp on it, but uh, I also worry now that we actually have open ground war erupting in Russia. It suddenly doesn't make things like a civil war in the U.S. seem so far fetched anymore. Right. Yeah. And it's amazing how much the American right who have nothing to gain from Trump or the Republicans have been manipulating into supporting and this and you know, the position of wealth and capital that is not going to serve them at all to the point that they're willing to, to kill for it. Mm -hmm. So anyways, well, okay. Well, I have to ask this, which is okay. what is the final secret of the Illuminati? <laughs> well, you know, while it's on a much smaller scale than what popular belief has invested them with, they actually succeeded in placing members of their secret society throughout the educational, political, and religious establishments of Bavaria. So that when the when things started falling apart, the uh, you know, the Jesuits have been complaining for years that they were no longer able to uh, get promotions or stipends or anything because the Illuminati had taken all the, uh, the main positions, the main posts in the part of the government that worked with religious institutions, uh, the, the courts. So actually they were successful when they were outed, they were quickly removed from power. Uh, but if, you know, and you have to look at uh, Weishaupt's arrogance as playing a key role in that because uh, Utschneider, who was the one that ratted, ratted, ratted them out to uh, uh, Princess Clementina, who was the widow of, who would have been the Bavarian, uh, the elector count. And she was the one that harped and harped on her lazy uh, uh, brother-in-law that he had to do something about this evil organization. And he just ignored it until all of a sudden she found some thing that freaked him out. And then he brought the, the entire power of the state apparatus to bear on them. And, you know, banned Freemasonry, banned, you know, edicts declaring all secret societies illegal within the borders of Bavaria, et cetera, et cetera. And when the Illuminati did in the favor of coming out of the shadows to contest this, they basically became everybody's scapegoat. You know, you had at this point 
the threat of war between Prussia and the Austri Austria. And that was something that Bavaria was involved with because there was like this rumor that Prussia was going to engineer some sort of uh, swap of Bavaria to the Emperor of Austria in return for Belgium that would be more uh, suitable for, you know, the, the people of Belgium were more akin with uh, that era's German Enlightenment Protestant values. So you find Prussians and Austrian partisans both accusing the Illuminati of being on either side. Which I suppose has led to beliefs that they were playing both sides. Well, when you, when you see the, the arguments that were made by the different people, you can see that they're just taking a few things from an earlier acquisition and allowing a certain logic to, to run haywild. And what do you think would have happened if the Illuminati had not disbanded and they had actually been more, they actually had infiltrated perhaps the whole of Europe and continued on? I mean, for us, you know, their ideals are the same as what uh, animated the founding fathers of this country to a large extent. There is nothing, I mean, a lot of the slander and accusations they face, just such as teaching their wives to be, you know, wanton sluts and teaching people how to poison people and all this, was, you know, basically the same as uh, King Philip the Fair attacking the Templars. You know, just or the the Damien Eccles mm -hmm. a few years ago. It's like the the satanic panic that went on here. Yeah, or or Genesis in in England. Oh yeah, in England. Yeah. Yep. So you see that that's that's like a uh, a convenient tool that's always brought out when some uh, group of people that is offering a sensible alternative to business as usual starts to get established, then all of a sudden they have to be vilified as promoting some of the most heinous things you can imagine. Well, it sounds like maybe we need the Illuminati again to promote sensible and heinous ideas that shake up the, uh, you know, or the, well, you know, to you fight have, back I against mean, what's happening now, perhaps. Yeah. Well, you know, if you find some, the Adam Weiss helped of today would probably be spurred on by, uh, Discussed with the communist uh, theocracy of modern American Christianity. You know, like maybe it's uh, Falwell that has inspired him to go to, to put together a system to reduce that threat once and for all. Yeah, that would actually be great. And it's, it's, I, I really did think that we had moved on in the 90s, but no, no. No, it's 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 funny how these things cycle back. Yeah, I suppose it's That's not funny sometimes. Right, I suppose it's kind of like the the Reagan Reagan era coming in after the the sixties and seventies, or or I make the point in the John D book that the, um, uh, James the first coming in after the Elizabethan era. Suddenly, there's a religious conservative backlash. So it'd be it'd be nice if we could have the Illuminati back. Perhaps we need them more than ever now. Well, you know, if they were in power. Uh, it might be along the lines of just uh, sabotaging the actual 
decisions and steps taken by the right wing in power. Not pushing for this uh, dark money, doing whatever. Yeah. Being in a position where they could just like quietly thwart. And cer- certainly, certainly get religious money taken out of political decision makings decision making it's amazing how much the tax exemption tax exemption for religions has has unleashed pandora's box also oh i know well when i lived in philadelphia you know like the richest real estate and philly is around villanova and that whole area it's just all uh, off limits it's all belongs to the church yeah, we might need the Illuminati again, and I'm for that. If anyone listening has is interested in in taking the reins, so okay, well, where where so the book is out now, right? Tell us where yeah. you can find the book, why we should buy the book, and uh, I believe it's on Kindle also, right? There's a Kindle version. Uh, the uh, the pub date is March first, which is when uh, all the online booksellers will start selling it. Uh, I know a few copies have made it into bookstores ahead of this, uh, but as of March 1st, you should be able to buy it anywhere. Uh, I know uh, it's not only uh, bookstores, but there's some... uh, uh, I'd have to check with the sales director, but Edmund's catalog, I think, is going to carry it, and a number of other non-traditional book vendors are all are all into into carrying this great well i have a the copy you sent me and it is a beautiful looking book it's huge yeah it's like a door stopper and it's just be- beautifully it's got a beautiful dust a dust jacket and it, it has the it has the air of something that's going to go up in value i think so i think i think it's it's uh and there's you know you don't find books like this anymore yeah well, I, I do want to ask one final question, which is, uh, I forgot to ask it before, which is what prompt, you, you probably spent a long time translating this. So, so what prompted you to do that and how, what was that experience like? Well, I actually translated it many years ago as a favor to a friend who's no longer here, but uh, one of our authors, Jim Wasserman, had discovered this book and he photocopied uh you know, the original French edition, and asked me if I could translate it. He was under the impression it was then in the public domain, and it wasn't. And then after I translated it, and he'd abandoned his desire to do it, I spent like 10 years trying to figure out who owned the rights. And I talked to all this, uh, you know, friends and French publishing, that it went into public domain last year. Ah, uh, okay. So, uh I heard also, I mean, I wrote to tons of people. I never got any satisfying response. Hmm. And it was interesting because, I, I mean, we would have done it with our traditional deal with a foreign publisher, but, you know, it it's, was completely, I, my search for the, anybody to, to negotiate an agreement with was completely fruitless. Hmm. Well, the I think the... The final product is is amazing and hopefully wor- hopefully worth the, the fifteen years. I mean, it's an incredibly beautiful book. And well, actually, I wish I could do this all the time because you know I translated it fifteen years ago and then I just put it aside because I didn't look at it. So when I went back at it, it was all fresh. So I could really tweak it 
and edit it well. I wasn't, you know, when you when you go right into a book to do the second pass, you could sometimes miss things because you're just, you know, kind of stupefied. Yeah, I I know that feeling. <laughs> well, thank you very much for being on the podcast, and hi, well, I hope that the book highly recommended, and I, I hope to talk to you again on the podcast soon. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. Okay, hope you really, really enjoyed that. Meet me at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism for lots more. All right, I'll see you in class.